Hello everyone, my name is Ed Kemp and welcome to the Speak Up podcast, a podcast for leaders who want to make a difference. The current COVID-19 environment has led to a number of challenges for organisations, including sustaining team alignment, stretched leadership teams and disengaged people. Speak provides CEOs with a tailored and proven approach to sustaining team engagement, encouraging tough conversations and empowering people to deliver outcomes and results. Regardless of the situation businesses face, identifying the critical issues, dealing with the elephants in the room and developing a go-forward plan must happen quickly and repeatedly to drive impactful outcomes. Our experience tells us that whilst embedding sustainable improvements in mindset, behaviours and capabilities is critical, it all starts with getting the team on the same page and engaged. Over the course of Series 1 of Speak Up, you'll hear from highly experienced leaders who will share their views on leadership and team alignment, their challenges, perspectives on what worked, how they've navigated COVID-19 and the cultural issues that inevitably get in the way of being on the same page and staying there. I hope that these conversations will get you asking yourself one very simple question. Am I on the same page with my team? And if not, how can I help us get there? If you're not sure whether your team is aligned, getting curious is the first step. You can also reach out via our website, www.speak.com, to find out how we can help you and your team get on the same page and stay there to optimise performance. Today's guest is Stephen Scott, founder and CEO at Starling Trust. Starling helps organisations to create, protect and restore value. Their predictive behavioural analytics platform provides complex organisations with leading indicators of trouble before opportunity is lost or crisis erupts, allowing businesses to optimise performance and minimise risk proactively. Stephen's background is in risk management and investigative intelligence. He's led successful engagements in over 50 countries and has lived and worked in the US, the UK, Germany, Spain and China. He speaks Spanish and German fluently and Mandarin well enough to get by in China without starving. Please enjoy my conversation with Stephen Scott. Stephen, welcome, and thanks very much for joining us this afternoon. Tell me about your career journey. What led you to start the Starling Trust, and what does Starling do? Hi, Ed. It's nice to be here, and thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, look, my career was probably as a closet academic. I've always enjoyed studies, and my studies focused on the social sciences, so psychology, sociology, philosophy, history. And then I went off and did a graduate degree in international relations, and the name sort of says it all. It's relations, right? So I've been interested in the relationships between people and groups and what drives the outcomes that they enjoy. I did a master's in business administration where, again, I focused on international trade, corporate governance. And so, again, the question was one of uh, dynamics in groups that are focused on creating the right sorts of outcomes you're failing to do so. So that was a great academic background to set me up to be a waiter. Uh, and after waiting tables for a few years after university, I had to try to figure out how to put all that to work in a practical context. And I was um, sought out by some people who were working in a field that's now quite well established, but back in the early 90s, it was fairly newfangled. It was effectively private sector spy for hire. So the industry that was pioneered by Jules Kroll uh, really came up at around the same time that globalization was bringing firms into far-flung parts of the world and landing them in problems that they hadn't anticipated and for which they needed help, and they didn't know who to call. It wasn't the sort of thing lawyers could help with. It wasn't the sort of thing their accountant could help with. And so you'd call on those people with an odd set of skills to do intelligence gathering on the ground in murky circumstances, be that fraud, corruption inquiries, uh, internal investigations, uh, and that was where I cut my teeth. 
I was made the chief international investigator for the U.S. Senate back uh, during an inquiry around the Clinton campaign in 96, where there were suspicions that Chinese espionage agents trying to funnel money into the campaign. Uh, but in all that work that I did over a 30-year career in that field, uh, working on the ground in about 50 countries, you sort of see the same movie over and over again. People are people. Are people. Our differences are really at the margins. And if there's patterns in our behavior, then that led me to think, well, can we get proactive around this stuff rather than always sort of managing from the back foot, waiting for something to go wrong and coming in and trying to figure out how it went awry and what we need to do to try to address that, and instead of anticipating things going wrong. And it seems to me that big data and technology would make that possible, and that was what led to me creating Starlink. And if you think about some of the things that you did in that 30-year career before Starlink, and you talk about fraud, corruption, all sorts of different internal investigations, was there anything or maybe one or two things that stood out that just continually made you raise your eyes or surprise you about the fact that the same things are happening over and over again and people are probably trying to, to think that there's going to be a different outcome? Yeah, so there's a couple of answers to that question. One of the things that was really sort of uh, unexpected for me and, and shaped my views ever since is that I'd sit across the table from someone like yourself. You seem like a decent source. You seem like, you know, you were raised right. You're a good sort of guy who's going to make good decisions. And these people were involved in having done really bad things. And I would ask them, you know, this doesn't seem like you to have done this. Um, can you help me understand what happened here, why you made these choices, and why you engaged this behavior? And the answer was always the same. And the answer was I had no choice. And it's really striking. Whether you're German or Japanese or Ecuadorian or Canadian, it was the same answer, right? I just didn't have a choice. But if you pry into that, what you discover is that there are some common truths about the way we operate as human beings, and that is we need to stay aligned with the group that we are working with. We need to remain welcome as a member of that group. And therefore, we need to change our behavior so that it accommodates the group's norms so that we fit in, right? Go along, get along. And that conformity dynamic to the norms of an organization is hugely important, far more important than most people would recognize. So that was one big takeaway. The second big takeaway is just how management science largely ignores that. We have a model that comes from traditional economics that sees man as a rational actor and we, we solve for carrots and try to avoid sticks. And therefore, management is really about setting the right incentive plan in place. Incentives are always defined as money. So if we get the right incentive plan in place, everything should sort itself out and we shouldn't have any issues. And of course, that model fails over and over again. And so that was also sort of a big learning. Is why is it that we're wedded to this idea of what will shape behavior in an organization when it has been proven to be largely unreliable? And why don't we seek out a different model that draws on the behavioral sciences that I had studied for all of my academic career that I had experienced in my investigative history? Uh, so again, that led me to feel, you know, there's a need for a better approach and maybe I could be the one who brings it to the world. And you think about that approach and the change that needs to happen when it comes to people making decisions. And I get the whole belonging, the conformity thing to a group because if you're sitting on the outer, it's a very difficult place to be just from a, a social interaction and connection perspective. But what are some of the things that you've observed 
in the context of bad decisions when an individual or a group of individuals aren't aligned to the broader strategy, if you like, of of an organisation where there's almost a, you know, a couple of mavericks which can suddenly throw a whole range of people off kilter purely because, you know, I would argue that's, that, that an alignment can come from the bottom up and the top down just depending on what sort of organisation is and what people are in it. And often the peer group in a vertical cell, if you like, or an organisational division will be the ones that actually will drive the alignment, even though at the very top of the organisation they're saying, well, this is what we're going to do, and then it gets filtered down to the, to the people that sit below them. And so if you think about management, leadership and people all coming together, what do you think about the issue of making sure that people are aligned and they're exhibiting the right behaviours? So what you mentioned before, people don't just go, I didn't have a choice. I could actually make a choice that says to me, I'm doing the right thing, both by myself morally and by the company as well, in order to do what needs to be done. Yeah, so there's a lot there to unpack. I'm glad you brought up the point about signal coming from the top versus signal coming from the bottom. I think that's a hugely important point and one that, again, is poorly understood. Look, most of our work is in the financial sector where there's a prevailing wisdom that um, if you want to see the right behavior in an organization, what's critical is that you have the right tone from the top. And as a great example of that, Wells Fargo, the the CEO uh, who was there at the time of the false account scandal, John Stump, was asked on a TV program shortly before he appeared before the Senate Banking Committee, you know, why would people in your organization do this? I mean, it wasn't even that much of a payout. Why would they make these bad decisions and engage in this bad behavior? And he threw his hands in the air in in exasperation and frustration. So I can't explain human behavior. Now, he's been banned from the industry for life because he can't explain human behavior. And uh, he's been fined uh, millions of dollars and counting, as have a number of other senior executives, who were expected to drive a different outcome in that organization than the outcome we saw. And I think most of those people probably feel like they did the right thing in setting the tone from the top. We can agree or disagree with them, but I think they probably felt that they had set the right tone and that they were genuinely surprised that the behavior that they witnessed was not the behavior they expected. And so if the tone from the top is important, I I think it is, I think there's a bit of an 80-20 principle. It's maybe only 20% of what drives behavior. It's really the signal from the bottom that drives behavior. The great metaphor that I use to describe that is driving. How fast do you drive? The speed limit sign is the tone from the top. But if the speed limit is 50 and you're doing, uh, and the cars around you on average are doing 70, then I'll wager you're doing somewhere between 67 and 73. So it's the cars around you that shape how you're going to drive, not the traffic rules, the traffic laws, or any posted speed limit that seeks to set. Do we not want to have speed limits? That's probably a bad idea, unless you're on the Autobahn. But I think that serves as a good illustration of how tone from the top is often overrated. You know, it's interesting you talk about the tone from the top and the bottom-up approach because, you know, most of us have been in organisations over time where you might be in a leadership meeting or you're in there with the managing director or the head of the division and they do a big presentation. So this is what we're going to do and then everyone walks out and then there's you know, there's always two or three people that go back to their desks and maybe pick up the phone and we say, that was a load of baloney. 
I don't care what he's saying. We're not doing that. And then suddenly that just permeates through maybe the organisation or the team that you're managing. And then suddenly there is this divergence. So there is suddenly there's no alignment with regards to what has just been said and what you're actually going to go and do. And I think that's where real problems can occur. And that's really illustrates your point about the fact that, sure, it's driven top down, but at the same time, the real influence are the ones that are around you. So, yeah, so I've got two very academic thoughts that I'll share with you in response to that. So there's a guy at Oxford called Robin Dunbar, who's a brilliant evolutionary anthropologist and primatologist, and he studied effectively how the apes behave and how they maintain social groups and what patterns may exist in the size and structure of those groups. And he found a relationship between the size of a part of the brain and the size of the groups that different apes are able to maintain. And for humans, as an ape, he finds that we have a core group of people who are our most intimate connections in life. The people we trust most deeply, most implicitly, upon whom we rely most powerfully. And then and there's about five to seven of those people. And, you know, the kind of guy that if you kill someone, you call him and say, hey, I killed someone, and he says, I'll grab a shovel, and we'll talk about it after, right? Those sort of people. There's not a whole lot of people like that in our lives. And then there's a, a larger group that are all pretty intimate. They call that the sympathy group, and there's about 15 people or so. And then a, a larger group that's a big work group that's maybe 50 people. And we kind of max out at about 150 people that we can maintain collaborative relationships with. And that dynamic, we think about it as concentric circles, that prevails in all walks of life, right? So we find that in our home life, and we find that in our work life. What flows from that is that in our work life, you'd expect in any organization that someone would have a handful of people that they trust most deeply, others who they feel we're pretty good about and work with quite well, and then the larger organization. So who do you take your behavioral cues from? It's going to be that inner group of people. And if the people out at the perimeter, right, the compliance officer, management, regulators, the law, you get farther and farther away from this, my center of self, you become less and less important to me in shaping how I choose to comport myself. And again, that's a, a very well-established learning from, I mean, it's not even social science, it's the natural sciences, right? It's factually demonstrable and has been demonstrated in repeated studies that we have these core groups. And yet that doesn't inform our management. Where we think that the formal org chart represents the organization in its operational reality. And we make decisions based on that org chart. And as a model of an organization, it's a terrible model. Right? What you need to look at is the company behind the chart. And that company is really defined by the trust relationships that exist. Which brings me to the second academic point. And that is, there's been a lot of talk uh, of late about the importance of achieving a cultural environment within a firm that emphasizes psychological safety. And that work was done at Harvard by a professor called Amy Edmondson. And in full disclosure, Amy is a, is a friend and an advisor to me at Starling. Um, and what it finds is that if people feel safe with others, if there's a trusting, respectful relationship, then candor is obligatory. And candor is not about being nice. Uh, candor is about calling it out as you see it. And it's about actively disagreeing about things and doing just the opposite of what you just described. 
We all get in the room. Someone says, here's what we're going to do. Everyone nods and says, oh, yeah, that sounds great. They're completely disingenuous. And then when the boss lady leaves the room, you know, the handful of us look at each other and say, hell with that. And, you know, the Brené Brown studies that have come out over the course of the last 15 or 20 years, which I think are uh, would be strongly aligned with Amy and, and the way she talks about psychological safety and creating an environment where you can be yourself and respectfully call things out if they need to be called out. And I can remember, distinctly remember being in a meeting in 2012 where a colleague of mine said something, asked a question, and another colleague just shot him down in front of 40 people. And that set the tone for that meeting for the next six months where nobody would be prepared to ask a question. So I've seen it in action and it's terribly disconcerting when those sorts of things occur where people aren't or, or they're fearful of what the ramifications might be by asking a question or making a comment. If you think about that from the perspective of where Australia's at right now, we've got the majority of our workforce are working from home, they're locked down, certainly Melbourne and Sydney, which is where we and Brisbane has been locked down over the course of the last month or so as well. And we spoke the other day about the fact that organisations have a really strong social fulfilment role to play for people. That's where we get most of our social interaction these days. And we can't get this social fulfilment in Australia. And that leads to lack of connection, leads to insufficient team alignment, overstretched leadership and disengaged people. When you think about alignment from the, all the experiences that you've had, and no doubt there would have been times when you're investigating frauds and other sorts of issues where there is a lack of alignment. So can you talk about maybe some of the outcomes that you've had to deal with when teams are clearly not aligned? Yeah, so interestingly, Microsoft just released quite recently a study where they looked at the communication patterns among their employees and how those patterns shifted as we move to work from home. And what they found is that our communications become more static, which is to say we tend to communicate with the same people over and over rather than cultivating new relationships. And that our sphere of engagement with peers narrows. And it sort of goes right back to what I was saying a moment ago about the work that, that Robin Dunbar did. What you find is that when people work from home, they collaborate with the people that they trust most deeply. And they keep themselves in their behaviors aligned with that group. Alignment is something that is very much so an organic process from the bottom up. And if you're a manager trying to manage from the top down, and you're blind to what these relational dynamics are like, what these different reference groups look like within an organization, then you can try your best to set the right tone from the top and you can try your best to create alignment. It's not a command and control function, right? It's voluntary discipline. And if you're not aware of where people are taking their behavioral cues, then you're going to be very ineffective. And we're seeing that all over the place. The point that I've made to a lot of people since COVID and work from home is that I don't know that the workplace has changed all that much. The workplace isn't defined by the four walls of a building. The workplace is defined by the collaborative networks that operate within the organization. And those networks continue to exist in a work-from-home environment, but they're shrunken down and static and more confined to the people that we trust most deeply. So if you don't have that sense of 
who trusts whom in the organization, and who do they take their signal from, then you're flying blind. And I think that's a real problem today. And if you think about in the context of COVID and the potential for significant lack of alignment, what are the sorts of things that perhaps you've either observed over the course of the last 18 months or you've spoken to with colleagues from Starling and clients about how organisations are ensuring that they are on the same page and their people are on the same page, even though they're now, you know, from a day-to-day perspective, disconnected in as much as they can't get in the same room, you know, have the conversations around the water cooler and just have those incidental conversations, which are so important to a, the development of people, but also to the sharing of ideas and information that can lead to, to great outcomes. Yeah, so again, I'll reemphasize that our work is focused on the financial sector. You know, it may not be the case that what we witness in the financial sector is fully generalizable to the world of work writ large. That having been said, I would expect that there's a lot of similarities between what we're seeing in the financial sector and what's taking place in other industries. We do know, Stephen, that uh, most people are impacted by the financial sector in some way, shape or form with respect to superannuation investments and the like. And certainly when the financial sector behaves badly, everybody knows about it. Yeah, look, I've used the metaphor that the financial sector is the, the circulatory system of any given economy. And if you have blood toxicity in the system, that's not a good thing. And so the culture that prevails in the industry becomes incredibly important. And that came out so clearly in the Hain Commission inquiry in Australia, the lessons of which seem to have been lost by the current administration in Australia. We'll, we'll see what the future holds there. But there does seem to be a real emphasis right now among policymakers in Australia, Josh Frydenberg, to push for making sure that the regulators support the financial industry in creating greater economic opportunity in Australia. And that's great. I applaud that. But what we saw during the Hague Commission was that we can't always rely on people in the financial sector to behave properly. And so if ASIC is all of a sudden meant to be a facilitator of the industry rather than a watchdog of the industry, that leads me to question what wisdom may have gone out the window with COVID. There's no doubt that in Australia, we're still muddling our way through and we've got a fair bit of work to do. I don't envy the politicians and and the fact that they've got a pretty difficult job to do at the moment. Not everybody who's listening to this podcast will necessarily agree with that, but that's just my simple view. I mean, one of the interesting things about the whole alignment and being on the same page conversation is that different organisations will use different tools and tactics to help people get on the same page. Has there anything that you've observed over the course of your career that you've seen that has worked better than other things when it comes to getting groups of people together to address the elephants in the room, so to say, so that when they all walk out, they do know exactly what they're going to do. They do know the role that they're playing in the broader scheme of things and that more importantly, they can actually stay aligned when they do leave that room and they're very consistent with the communication that they make all the way through the organisation. Because at Speak, our view is that it's one thing to actually get teams aligned and on the same page. It's a whole other story to actually keep them there. Well, look, again, I'll go back to Amy Edmonds. There was, there was a, an interesting project that was done at Google that received a lot of attention. They called it Project Aristotle. And they spent years and quite a bit of money trying to explore what is it that makes our teams perform well here at Google? What is it that allows our teams to act in collaborative concert in a way that's consistent with the mission's goals and values of the organization and produce great outcomes. And they tease through lots of different possible drivers of that kind of collaborative alignment. 
And what they found was the overriding important factor was is their psychological safety. And so I, I think that that lesson is now being popularized. And you know, Amy Edmondson is all of a sudden a pretty sought-after speaker, uh, and rightly so, because she's observed a real phenomenon that leads to real performance outcomes with real impact for customers, stakeholders, shareholders, that has largely been viewed as sort of soft stuff, right? This, you know, do we all get along? How do we all get along? You know, we've tended to de-emphasize that management. One of the maybe good things that's come out of COVID is all of our usual ways of managing the organization are up for re-examination. Some of it's not available to us. So we've got to try to think anew about how to be most effective. And in the course of that questing about for better way to get from A to B, people are discovering that maybe some of the models that informed our previous management weren't great models and maybe there are better ones out there. So hopefully we'll take some positive lessons from our current work from home experience and the ideas that Amy and others have espoused about the importance of trust in organizations and connectedness among people that's genuine and organic. Maybe that becomes hard management science rather than fairly soft stuff. If you look back over my sort of 30-year career working, it seems so obvious that, you know, trust is extremely important, transparency, candidness. I think if I reflect back on some conversations that I've had over the years is that myself and colleagues probably were happy to have the tough conversations, but the tough conversations were had in such a way that they became very, very tough and very, very confrontational. And the people on the receiving end of potentially bad feedback in their own context, maybe it didn't go down too well purely because of the approaches that people take when it comes to uh, maybe dishing out news that not a lot of people want to hear, uh, which is something that happens in organisations every day all around the world. Now, we're going to change gears just quickly um, before we wrap things up. You're an individual who's very well read, extremely interesting background, what are you watching, reading, and listening to at the moment? Is there anything that's grabbed you that our listeners might go, you know what, I might pick that book up, I might listen to that podcast, or I might even jump on Netflix and watch something which is uh, which is going to teach me a little bit, or, or I might learn something. Yeah, well, so if, if you ask me that question today, I might give you a different answer yesterday and tomorrow, but um, one of the things that I think is fascinating is the development of a field called computational social science. And that is effectively what we're doing at Starling. Computational social science is derived from computational biology, which is the basis of genetic engineering. And what you do in genetic engineering is, or computational biology is you think if we rearrange the parts and they're assembled differently, how will the organism behave differently in very crude description? And so we're sort of looking at organizations as effectively an organism, and we're asking if we change the parts in the following way, how will the behaviors change? One of our advisors, uh, Nicholas Christakis, is a network scientist, a medical doctor, sociologist at Yale, and he uses a terrific metaphor. He says, you know, carbon atoms are identical, and if you arrange them in one way, you get graphite, which has certain properties. It's dark and it's soft, and yet if you take those exact same atoms and rearrange them differently, you get diamond, which has very different properties. It's clear, it's hard. Uh, and so understanding the network of parts and looking at the interactions among those parts is pretty important. Again, full disclosure, Nicholas is an advisor to us. 
Uh, another of our advisors is a gent by the name of Damon Santola at the University of Pennsylvania who talks about things going viral. And he makes a distinction between what he calls simple contagions and complex contagions. A simple contagion is you get Beyonce to tweet it, then maybe the message spreads. Uh, but that's information transference. It's not necessarily changing behavior. If you want to change behavior, particularly if people perceive some level of risk in changing their behavior, then what you need is complex contagion. You need to hear the same thing from many people. And as Dunbar would point out, the people in your closest circle of, of, of reference. And so all of these different fields are sort of humming together to create a new science around what it is that drives behavior change and shapes organizational change. And I think, you know, sort of as we've seen in the past, it's Six Sigma, and then, you know, I think you know, agility, there these, these fads that erupt when ideas change. And um, I think ideas are changing and, and watch this space. That sounds very interesting. So computational social science, everybody out there, Google it and I'm sure you'll find some information that might even take you back to Starling. Getting back to Starling just for one second, you've got a, an amazing group of experienced advisors that you've built an ecosystem around you and, and they, they come from different walks of life with different experiences. Can you tell me what they bring to the table from the perspective of you as the individual running Starling and having a, a group of advisors around you? And with all of those backgrounds, how do you ensure that they, if you like, stay aligned from a Starling perspective? Because there's obviously lots of different opinions, lots of different perspectives. Is there something that you do there to ensure that you guys are all on the same page? Or do you want the diversity or the divergence of views as part of a value add for your clients? Yeah, so I think it's the latter. We want the diversity of perspectives. But I think that everyone associated with our business is very much so aligned around the central mission of our business. And the central mission of the business is, you know, this collapse in trust in all of our key social institutions. You know, the attacks on the Capitol building on January 6th in this country just show how damaging it can be when people lose faith in institutions. And so if people have lost faith in institutions largely because those institutions have failed them, and if they've failed people largely because the people in those institutions have engaged in bad acts, right? Think about, again, the Hain Commission and, and all the, the bad acts it uncovered. If people lose faith in, in the financial industry, which is all about trust. And if you stop trusting the key institutions that bind us as the people, everything, I think, goes to hell in a handbasket fairly quickly. And so I think all of our advisors would agree with that view, and then they bring diverse perspectives of learning to, well, what do we do about it? As for me and, and my relationship with them, I mean, uh, they've all become friends and they serve for me <laughs> really two key functions. You know, what I've asked of all of them is, please help me overcome my native idiocy. And so you surround yourself with people smarter than you and then you listen to them. On the flip side, it's please protect me from my habitual arrogance. When you're a guy with an idea and you think you're right, it becomes pretty easy to drink your own Kool-Aid. And so you need someone to smack you across the head and say, no, you got that one wrong. And so you surround yourself by people who you'll listen to them if they smack you over the head. Um, people that you genuinely respect as brilliant. You know, Gary Cohn, the former president of Goldman Sachs, is an advisor, an investor, and a friend. And Gary's not the kind of guy who suffers fools gladly, I can tell you. I could imagine that would be the case. 
Yeah, no, but he's great. He's a great source of wisdom, a great source of discipline, a great source of, of helping to keep the organization aligned on sort of business objectives. And then different advisors help us keep aligned around different things. But I think you're very right at speak to emphasize alignment. And we're really looking at these guys to help keep us aligned on the different core factors that we believe will lead to our success. Now, this podcast is all about alignment leadership. And if you think about the biggest challenges that leaders face today, what do you think are the biggest challenges that leaders of organisations face today? And do you think that they're equipped to actually deal with them? from a pure leadership perspective and getting people to follow them with regards to what organisations need to do? So I'll answer that in reverse. Do I think they're equipped? Largely, no. There are exceptions, but in terms of what I think is the greatest challenge, it goes back to this trust issue. The public affairs firm Edelman produces a study every year they call it the trust barometer on what the level of trust is in different institutions around the world. And what they found in their most recent report unsurprisingly to me, is that right now the organizations that we trust most deeply are our own firms, right? It's not the media, it's not the NGOs, it's not the scientists, it's not the government, it's the people I work with. And so that creates a tremendous opportunity for organizations. If your people are looking to you to help guide them out of our current time of trial, then Understanding that and seeing it as an opportunity to win trust with your own people who, of course, then touch your customers and can inspire trust among your customers, which then increases brand value and increases market cap, right? So, again, all this stuff that's traditionally viewed as kind of soft and fluffy becomes the fundamental basis of value creation and value preservation. And so if you believe that, then I think you need to start asking different questions about how you put some of that to work. And hopefully that leads you to Starling. You heard that first from Stephen, everybody, Starling Trust. Now, we're going to wrap this up, but before we do, I ask the same question. The last question is the same question for every one of our guests on this podcast. What do you know about leadership and alignment now that you wish you knew when you were just starting out in your career? I'll give you an anecdote. My young daughter uh, and I were talking recently about school and, you know, are you a leader or are you a follower and you know, what kind of person are you? An air of great confidence. She said, oh, I'm a leader. And I said, that's great. How many followers do you have? <laughs> and she said, uh, <laughs> and so it's kind of a simple thing, right? Um, if people aren't following you, you're not leading. It's just that simple. And so if you look at any organization and you see someone in the position of management and his or her people are just not performing to expectation, that is, they're not following that leader, then that person is a leader in name only. Yeah, and clearly you and I are very aligned on this, is that if you want to be a leader, it's not about you, it's about the people that you lead. And I think you would argue that a lot of leaders at the moment maybe don't think the same way like that. Yeah, again, it's that top-down versus bottom-up. You know, if people follow you, you're a leader and they look to you for guidance. And if they see that there's lots of other people like them who are also following you and you can foster good relationships and collaboration among them, then the sum is greater than the whole of the parts. Again, I think that a lot of mentality around this is wrong and it's under challenge. It's under assault, certainly under assault from the millennials. They're not putting up with these old ideas. So we old geezers either better learn new tricks or we're going to be forced out of the way. 
Stephen, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Speak podcast this afternoon. Uh, stay safe over in the US and uh, we hope to see you soon face to face. But thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. It's great to be here and I can't wait to get back off. Thank you for listening to episode one of the Speak Up podcast, a podcast for leaders who want to make a difference. Speak supports CEOs and their teams to optimise leadership and performance with a tailored and proven approach that builds trust and delivers outcomes. To find out more, visit www.speak.com, spelled S-P-I-I-Q-U-E. Please keep an ear out for the next episode of the Speak Up podcast and please subscribe and share it with your friends. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe and stay curious.